Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. In this episode, my guest is my old friend, Dr. Larry Dossey. Larry and I go back quite a long way. We met first, I think, in 1993, which is the uh, Mystics and Scientists Conference, when I invited him to speak at that conference on the heart. And um, I also started reading his books as early as 1983. His first book that I read was Space, Time and Medicine. And, and I, I was really extraordinarily impressed by the book and, and its, its philosophical content and, and also the way that it, it had a new view of medicine. Uh, Larry's career goes back to the, the 60s when he qualified in internal medicine. And then he found himself serving as a battalion surgeon in Vietnam. And, and he's the author of, of nine books, the most recent of which is One Mind. And I know he's spoken at something like 90 medical schools. And in one of his other podcast interviews, I remember him describing himself as a roving troublemaker. And, and I, I thought that um, this is a very good thing to be if you're waking people up and encouraging them to think out of the box. So I'd like, like to come, Larry, to my first question, which is about a, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Can you identify such a moment? I recall going through the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I got a degree in pharmacy and... Uh, I didn't want to be a pharmacist the rest of my, <laughs> the rest of my life, but it uh, was a way of earning my my keep, so to speak, through uh, medical school. In my last year in uh, pharmacy school, I was totally confused about what I wanted to do. I, all, all I knew is that I didn't want to go into pharmacy, hmm. uh, which was awkward because that's what my my degree was, and so it was. Uh, a moment of great confusion. Fortunately, I had an identical twin brother who I could share my indecision with. He was about as indecisive as I was. Neither one of us had a clear path. He decided that he wanted to go to medical school. I was so indecisive that I decided I would do the same thing. Uh, so we both went to medical school. Uh, we had top grades being admitted was not an issue for us. But uh, six weeks into the first year in medical school, he decided he didn't want to do that. And so he switched to dental school. I was sort of a creature of habit, so I decided I would stay in medical school, and I came to love it. I'm one of those people, David, who takes the path of least resistance, and so I have never had a great life program or plan. I've just sort of put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And so it sort of worked for me. Well, it obviously has worked. You know, I think that's... And, and while, while you were at medical school, did you, did you have a mentor um, or anyone who had a great influence on your, on your thinking? Yes. Uh, I uh, did my clinical work at the uh, Dallas Veterans Administration Hospital. And uh, the chief of medicine there was an urbane, polished, very wise mentor. Uh, he sort of took me under his wing, and I owe him so much. Uh, he was a father figure to me, and uh, he seemed to know everything. 
Can you think of a, 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 a specific piece of advice he gave you, or was it just really the kind of person he was um, that, that made this impression? Well, it, it was just a sort of nothing specific. It was just his aura and his kindness and his wisdom. Well, that's really enough, isn't it? That comes out, you know, across the board. There's no sort of particular incident that you might recall. And no, I, I can see that that would be, that would be um, very influential. I can think of various people in my own life. And then was there at that point or at any other point a, a particular book that shaped your choice of work and, or, or, or the choice of your, your fundamental interest, which had been in consciousness and healing and prayer and, and the wider? Well, I owe a lot to Aldous Huxley and his book, The Perennial Philosophy, was sort of a Bible uh, for me. And uh, if I had to pick one book that was pivotal, it, it would be The Perennial Philosophy. Interesting. That certainly had a very profound influence on me as well. In fact, I read a lot of Aldous Huxley, who, who was at the same school as I, as I was. He, he was at Eton. Um, I remember I was fortunate enough, and probably got it behind me in my library, to, to find an old copy, a sort of first edition. And I think you're right. Although there's a lot of people who now criticize it, it, it was um, a groundbreaking book at the time. And it shows that uh, there's something in common behind all these religious formulations, which I think right. is probably, I mean, your one mind probably converges on that same thought. Well, I remember reading about his final days. He, uh, he died in California, of all places, and uh, the people attending his death sent an ambassador back into his uh, death room, and they wanted to know if he had any advice for those who would stay behind. I'll never forget the words. He said, just be a little kinder. Do you remember oh, that? that so, and yes. so something so simple. And yes. Albert Schweitzer, he said, he said something very similar. Uh, and I know we've both been guests with um, Suzanne Taylor, uh, and she yes. and I are, are looking at doing something on, on the cultivation of kindness. And so it, very simple, but very profound. During your time as a, a battalion surgeon in, in Vietnam, you, you must have had some experiences there which um, have shaped your, your outlook, Larry. Well, I, uh, I volunteered for service in the Army. Uh, I thought I would, uh, if I volunteered, I would get an extra consideration for a nice assignment. It didn't work. I got the lowest assignment that a physician can get in the Army. I uh, was in the field with a bunch of paratroopers. And so I spent 12 months uh, at war, and it was one of the most definitive times in my life. I uh, had a lot of my young soldiers that I was responsible for who were, were killed and uh, mutilated, and uh, it was a moment in my life where life and death became real issues for me. I don't, uh, I'm still digesting the meaning of all of that. I'm glad I served in Vietnam because it was an intense moment for me to scrutinize the things that really mattered. It's almost bound to give you a you know, profound philosophy of life um, when you see this at such close quarters. And then is there, is there a moment of insight or an experience related to the way your work evolved, you know, for instance, in terms of the, the prayer and healing? or Well, it had to do with consciousness. Uh, when I came back from Vietnam, 
I uh, did a medical residency in internal medicine, and that took a couple of years. And then the first year I was in medical practice, one night I had a precognitive dream, which absolutely turned my views of consciousness upside down. I dreamt that the son, the three-year-old son of one of my colleagues, was in an examination room, and there was a technician who was trying to do something with his head, and I saw that it was she was trying to do an electroencephalogram, and this kid was going crazy. He was a three-year-old. He started screaming and fighting the technician, and the wife, the mother, was beside him in the uh, in the examination room and uh, she couldn't do anything with him either so finally the technician said i'm finished i'm through and she turned around and walked away this was at that time i thought one of the most vivid dreams i'd ever had in my life which made absolutely no sense at all until i went to work the next day and i was sitting in the lounge area with the father of this little boy, my colleague. All of a sudden, his wife walks into the lounge carrying the little boy. His hair is all wet and messed up, and he's crying. And And she explained to her husband, my colleague, my dream. She had just come from the EEG department where they tried to do an EEG on the little boy, and he just went crazy. And she described my dream to her, her uh, husband. Extraordinary. I, was, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean. And then you went on to, um, one of your books is about premonitions of precognitions. Yeah. It does open up this question of time, uh, free will, multiple streams of reality, you know, yeah. all these things, which, which are really quite hard to to grapple with. And I know that you know, David Ray Griffin, for instance, one of whose book, whose essays I've just been reading, he says, well, there can't be precognition because it's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think he's right. Um, uh, I, well, he needs to have one of these precognitive dreams to himself. shake him up a little bit. No, you're right. You're right. I know that we were talking to Jeff Kripal, um this week, and one of the stories he talks about, which may well be in your own book, is Mark Twain's precognitive dream about his brother's death. Yes. Um, and, and what strikes one about these things is that the detail is such that you can't just explain it away. No. Roses, the, the, the suit that actually belonged to Mark Twain, the metal coffin, you know, all of these rather unusual features. And if you say, well, it's just one of those things, I don't think you're getting to grips with the situation at all. In an instant, I knew that the uh, view of consciousness that I'd been presented in university and in medical school was, was completely wrong. Uh, I knew this was not supposed to happen. This contravened everything I'd been taught about consciousness. Uh, anybody in their right mind knows that you can't see the future, but there it was. Actually, that spurred me to read about precognitive events in other people's lives, and they weren't very different from my experience. And uh, I took a, a deep dive into the literature in parapsychology, uh, and I found out that this is a commonplace for people who pay attention to it and don't mind going public with this sort of stuff. And was this was this experience before your first book, you know, before you wrote Space, Time and Medicine? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This uh, was before I, I began to write. 
A funny thing happened in my medical practice. My patients began to tell me similar experiences they had, and I'm not sure how they, why they did this, but it's like they knew that it was okay to bring up these sorts of things. One woman, she was a female attorney, a very rational, logical woman, came into my office one morning and said, I had a dream that I had three little white spots on my left ovary, hmm. and I know I have cancer, so we need to deal with this. So I took her back to the x-ray department and introduced her to the radiologist and told him we wanted to do a sonogram on her ovaries. And he laughed and he said, well, this is the first sonogram I've ever done on account of somebody's dream. I want you to know that. And so he put her down and, you know, all this nonsense, really, which was very unprofessional. But about 15 minutes later, after the sonogram, he came back into my office and he was white as a sheet. And uh, I said, what's wrong with you? What did you find? And he said, three little white spots on her left ovary. He says, they're ovarian cysts. They aren't cancer. And I said, oh, exactly like she saw in her dream, right? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that's right. So that was just one example. Nurses began to come forward and, and share their strange experiences with me. Like they knew who was going to have a cardiac arrest in which bed on a particular shift. That sort of thing. So th these sorts of things really do have a, a, an air of urgency about them. And sometimes they, they can make a difference in life and death. Absolutely. What you said about being open to the experiences reminded me of a story of, uh, I don't think it was Peter, but it was one of our friends, Peter Fennick, um, who was giving a lecture on um, near-death experiences. And there was a doctor um, in the also in the audience, whose patient started talking about um, a near-death experience in the question and answer. And he stood up and said, well, why didn't you tell me at the time? He said, you were the last person I would have told. <laughs> so, in other words, he was closed off. Um, yes. And so there must become almost some kind of resonance where people can pick up unconsciously that you're open and it's safe to, to, uh, to say something, which is really fascinating, Larry. Well, I remember your first book uh, where you talked about resonance between people. And no, it's a powerful. You got there a long time before I did. Well, no, I don't think so. You have this understanding of consciousness, you know, which you've developed and refined over the years. So how, would you, how would you say it affects the way you live your life? Well, it gives me uh, a steadiness and uh, a positivity that would, I really attribute to this view of consciousness. I think consciousness is. Uh, eternal. I think it's non-local with respect to space and time. Uh, I think that we have immortality, the common word for infinitude in, in time, which I think is a good descriptor of consciousness. And so it's contributed tremendously to my mental peace as I go through my own journey in life. So it's become a, a very personal issue, which I take great comfort in. I can very much resonate with that because we've, we've done a lot of the same reading and thinking around the same principles, also the ethical principles, you know, going back to this question of kindness. 
Larry, you've talked about one or two formative experiences that have um, shaped your life, but I wonder if there's any other you'd like to mention. Well, I, uh, I've written 13 books, and all of these are spiritual experiences for me. They're a chance to turn inward and plumb my own thoughts as deeply as I can. And, and it's been uh, consoling also that these books have been embraced by others whose opinions I value. And I have a file cabinet now of readers who have shared their experiences with me that affirm my own. And this has been a, a, an extremely fulfilling journey for me. I've learned that uh, if you are forthright and honest and uh, courageous enough to put your own thoughts out, your public will join you. They will come out to meet you. And you find out that uh, you're not alone in the world. And it's sort of indirect proof that the premise that I've been putting forth for some time that we're all interlinked and are of one mind, it's evidence for that. That's been extremely fulfilling for me, David. Absolutely. I can imagine because when I first started reading accounts of near-death experiences, you might, I might read 200 at a time. You soon get a very good sense of the message and the substance and what the, what the real meaning of these experiences and significance is. And yes. One of the issues that we're obviously facing, and this is where the Galileo Commission work comes in, is how to persuade scientists and academics to take these sort of experiences seriously and ask themselves, what implications do they have for the way we understand mind and consciousness? Do you think we're any nearer, or do you think the resistance is, is still as great as it ever was? Well, it, it is not as great as it ever was. I uh, offer my own experiences as proof of that. In the 80s, uh, when I first began to lecture at medical schools about these issues, it was tough. The skeptics ruled the curricula and, you know, don't give us any of this spirituality uh, stuff. Uh, that's, that's not what medicine is all about. I've seen a titanic shift over the uh, years uh, now, most of American medical schools have formal coursework looking at the role of spirituality and its impact on health and longevity. This, this just simply did not happen back when I began this uh, journey. And the people who design the curricula are, are unapologetic about this. It's like now, it's just in the water. Everybody knows that people who follow a spiritual path, it doesn't seem to matter which, but they live longer and they have a better health profile during their life. They have less sickness than people who do not follow a spiritual path. I don't know anybody who even objects to this data anymore. It's a common knowledge. It's taught in medical schools around the country. And actually, you would be thought peculiar if you weren't attuned to this impact of spirituality in health and, and, and longevity. People who say things haven't changed just haven't been paying attention to what's going on, particularly in the U.S. medical schools. I think that's a very good example. I'm not sure that the U.K. medical schools are as advanced in that respect. And I did, I did at one point try to get support from the from Templeton Foundation to do a similar thing in, in the U.K. And, of course, they've supported a lot of the research in what, what you might call evidence-based spirituality, you know, forgiveness, love, and spiritual practices. That's right. 
And then, Larry, just coming coming towards the end, we were discussing before we went on air, as it were, your book of quotations. You collected 3,000 quotations. So I imagine it must have been quite a difficult choice um, when I asked you whether there was a quotation or, or maxim that you lived by, you know, to make a choice from all these 3,000 quotations. But do you have a couple for us? Well, I, I'll share one with you. Uh, it's a peculiar quotation, and it expresses our ignorance instead of our knowledge and wisdom. It's uh, Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel physicist uh, who won the Nobel Prize in 1933. He said, something unknown is doing we don't know what. And for me, that is a profound reminder. We're still at school, David. Yeah. I mean, really, what do we know? We get hints through precognition, which we talked about, and we have intuitions that lead us here and there, but in view of the immensity of what's out there that uh, Schrodinger is right, something unknown is doing, we don't know what, and we are still learning. It's like the, the sort of modern equivalent of Socrates when he said a wise person is one who's, who knows nothing. <laughs> when, of course, he was one of the wisest people of his, of his day. And also reminds me of um, Sir John Templeton's emphasis on humility, realizing there's a lot more mystery that we don't understand as compared to what you understand. And Larry, my final question is, um, do you have any advice you might give to your younger self? Oh, my. I would have been bolder instead of waiting until I was in medical school before spreading my spiritual wings, so to speak much more of a risk taker, but I got off to a slow start. I uh, grew up in a, a Southern Baptist fundamentalist church. I even played gospel piano for a roving tent evangelist. So I had all of this stuff to work through and go through before I began to open my mind and spread my wings, so to speak. So I got a late start. I would have uh, begun much earlier. And I'd known then what I think I know now. Well, that's a wonderful message, uh, Larry. And thank you so much for, for being my guest on Imaginal Inspirations. I've really enjoyed the conversation with you. That works two ways, my friend. <laughs>